Hello, everyone. This is Angela, and you're listening to the Angela Giles Clocky podcast. And if you're wondering what this podcast is about, since I do get that question sometimes, I guess I would sum it up as a spoken word blog. It is listed under memoir blogs, and that is because I am sharing life as it is now and life as it once was, stories from my traumatic past, but also stories of the healing journey. So while it is sharing stories and my experiences as a survivor, I'm also sharing thoughts and observations from the point of view of being a survivor, a speaker on this topic, and a coach working in the recovery field. For me, I sometimes show up with an idea of what I want to talk about, but overall, I just kind of kick back and have that conversation with you. I've talked about this in earlier episodes that even though this is, quote-unquote, a one-way conversation, because I'm talking to you and you're not talking back, I actually hope that it kind of engages you in the possibility of starting a conversation, whether it's with me or with others in your life. So if I say something that, you know, sparks an idea for you, like I hope it kind of just invites you into that, you know, creative conversation place with you know, someone else, with me, if you want to reach out, or even with yourself. We talk a lot about journaling and just that self-discovery of, you know, what we're doing in our everyday lives, whether we're recovering, which I think we're probably all recovering from something or going to recover from something because, you know, as sad as it is, we don't get out of this life without some heartbreak, even if it's, you know, quote unquote, one incident, small incident, whatever, versus some, you know, more capital T trauma that happens to folks. But we're not in competition with each other. So Let's just, you know, remind ourselves that we're all going through something, no matter what it is, and we're all recovering from something or will recover. And I just like to be in this space and talking about all of these things. I do want to remind everyone that this is not a podcast that is meant to be medical advice, mental health advice, legal advice, anything like that. I am just a person talking to anyone who wants to listen and sharing experiences if you are in danger or if you are concerned about your own mental health or your own safety there are so many resources available and of course I can't cover them all because I don't know where you are and what you need I want to celebrate something today as of this recording the day that I'm sitting in my podcast closet I am now 30 days uh, coffee-free. Now, I know some of you are like, ooh, big deal. And others of you are like, say it isn't so. You didn't give up the coffee. I did. Actually, my intention was to take a week off of coffee. You see, as I've shared in previous episodes, or if you're new here, I have some chronic health issues. My chronic health issues do not have a diagnosis, so I am left to navigate what may or may not work for myself. 
I have had some extensive medical testing and it's always come up with a big question mark. Part of that leads me to believe that my body is processing trauma, old trauma. And then part of that leads me to believe, right, like there's just something we can't find. And that happens for a lot of people. The autoimmune disease that I have is idiopathic. The first and really only big exhibit happened when I was 19. And, you know, idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura, and it's ITP for short. And it is a blood disorder, blood disease that is not catchy or anything like that, but it has to do with the platelets, uh, platelets count drops, or you don't, you know, you lose them all. And the idiopathic, of course, means, well, no, why did it happen? Don't know. I was under a lot of stress at the time, but I found out through the years that this is something that is, could pop its head up at any point in time. And at last check, I can't donate blood. I can't, you know, engage in any of those things that, you know, would be helpful. And I just can't give up myself in that way. And because I, my body is just, it needs what it needs. So I have made a lot of different uh, challenges and journeys in this area of what's going to work best for me, for my body. And I've done like Whole30, clean eating. I've done going sugar-free. I've done the uh, autoimmune Whole30. And while I have found some successes in those areas, they're harder for me to maintain because A, I like food. And B, I like sugar. (laughs) And C, I just, you know, you get to this place where it's like, if it didn't make that huge of a difference, why am I working so hard on something? So I have tried all of these different things. And one of the biggest battles I've had in the last several years is how hard it is to get real rest at night. And part of that is, you know, I've shared it before, you know, the the ghosts that live in the dark, um, in the night. That's an earlier episode if you want to go look at it, but it's, you know, when the monsters come to visit. Um, and it is, you know, it is difficult in that way, but it was also difficult because I can feel like, you know, my body's going that whole, through that whole perimenopausal change and that affects things, of course. But all I can think is there's got to be a better way. There still has to be a better way that I can come alongside these things that are naturally going to happen in my body and a woman's body and not be so miserable, not be so dragged down all the time. And, you know, adding in exercise and, and trying to do all of those things, nothing was necessarily working. And here's the thing, if you can't sleep, everything else is amplified. Every chronic pain that you have gets amplified. Every headache gets amplified. Every inability to focus on literally anything becomes more amplified. I already deal with brain fog. I already deal with loss of words. I already deal with all of those kind of things that, you know, sometimes my body just goes, oh, we're just going to fall over now. And I mean, that's, it's not that to that extreme, but sometimes I just, that happens, right? And my balance can be off. So it's really a matter of, you know, trying, trying things, trying things, trying things. Uh, A couple months ago, I learned that, well, I, 
I, I looked up melatonin again for side effects because I had had some success more recently in that it was helping me to fall asleep at least. But the problem was I was popping awake anywhere between one o'clock to three o'clock, unable to sleep. And then I was a muddled mess throughout the, you know, the day. And if I didn't have to go anywhere, that was okay. So I still couldn't nap though. I wasn't able to nap, but I would just be so incredibly tired. If I did have to go somewhere, I would try to get a ride. I would try to have my husband drive me around. And unfortunately, there were a couple occasions where I either had to cancel because I was so exhausted and dizzy that I just couldn't, you know, do what I needed to do in that day. So I looked up the side effects of melatonin. And though a lot of people don't have terrible, terrible side effects, I decided, you know, maybe this is affecting me in a certain way. So I cut melatonin, which made it then difficult to fall asleep at night. And I was you know, experiencing the laying awake and trying to fall asleep and trying to fall asleep and trying to quiet my mind and trying to do all of those things, which I've gotten a lot better at. But I did notice that I was no longer popping awake in those middle of the night hours where I couldn't go back to sleep. I still wake up here and there, but... I could go back to sleep. Yet, I could still tell my sleep was not where I wanted it to be. Thus, the idea that I would take a week off of coffee and see if that might help. Well, I realized with some research that a week probably wouldn't give me the results that I was hoping for. And in fact, of course, you know, when you first Uh, cold turkey quit anything, right? The body goes, oh my gosh, what are you doing? You know, and it just freaks out and it, and it does all the things. And so that first week was pretty miserable, terrible, terrible headaches, which I knew. And everybody said, you know, and all the advice says you should taper off. You should, you know, uh, wean yourself off of it. But I know me enough to know that reduction was not going to work. I had to just quit uh, because reduction to me says, you know, oh, next thing I know, I'm filling the cup a little bit more, whatever. And here's the thing. I maybe only drank two cups of coffee a day. And since my first Whole30 back in 2014, I believe, I started mostly drinking my coffee black. I had, you know, in like the last month before I went no coffee, I was drinking it with creamer again, kind of a treat yourself kind of uh, purchase. But in general, I drink my coffee black. Um, sometimes I will drink it with some milk. Sometimes I will drink it with coconut milk. But for the most part, no sugar in it and no more than really two cups, um, except for those days when I was extremely, extremely tired and needed to press on. Uh, there was an open house event I went to for um, Hard Beauty that I work for, and I couldn't even, I couldn't even, <laughs> I think I was there maybe 30 minutes and my ability to be present in that space was absolutely diminished. I drove home, went to bed. That was all I could do. And, and I, thankfully, I did get to sleep that day or rest. But, you know, really realizing, like, I don't take in that much. But the talk that I had with myself was, if a person has an allergy or, you know, um, 
they're lactose intolerant or they're, you know, gluten intolerant, like they can't even have just a little bit, you know, without it disrupting their whole system. So I was taking all these tools that I've learned of how to be, you know, trust myself, listen to myself, try something. And I realized one week wouldn't be enough. I needed to press on. So, you know, I went into two weeks and then I was just kind of taking it day by day, like with no intention of quitting coffee. But I realized that the one thing that was happening was that I had zero cravings for it. Like even smelling it was my husband was drinking coffee still. And even smelling it was not a temptation to me, which I thought was really bizarre, right? Because normally when I've tried to take breaks or have I have tried to quit in the past, I have been so incredibly tempted because I could smell it and I would be the only one trying to quit. And I have, you know, gone by, you know, Dutch Brothers and Starbucks and, you know, can smell that rich aroma and still be like, oh, that smells nice, but I'm not like, oh, I must have a coffee. So I thought that was really interesting. And I I decided that it was because I was in a different space than ever before to where maybe partly desperation, but to where I could trust myself to say, this time we've got it. And also, I work in the recovery community. I work with amazing warriors who have left substances of, you know, greater, uh, greater uh, addicting, you know, um, qualities to them than coffee. And I know that's, you know, depends on who you ask, but like I'm with these warriors who have been able to, you know, walk away from the drugs, walk away from the alcohol. And we are interacting consistently to the point that I'm like, I mean, if they can do that and, you know, again, I don't like to do the comparison thing, but I can look at that as an inspiration. If they can put those things down for their lives, for their families, for themselves, I can put this coffee down because it is affecting my life, my family, myself. And I have not had a craving and it, it's interesting to me. So today's day 30. Here's what I've noticed. Not only have I not had cravings, I've been celebrating each day, you know, counting them off because I've been drinking coffee since I was 19 years old. I taught myself to drink coffee. That sounds weird, but those international coffees that have flavors. I started drinking those because I had zero chance of getting more sleep, the sleep that I needed when I was uh, kind of on my own with my two boys one who was a, a tiny, tiny human and the other who was in school. And I was working two jobs. I worked at a newspaper and I worked uh, waiting tables at night. So I was barely seeing my boys and I was barely getting sleep. So I decided to learn how to like coffee. And I started off with those really sweet brands. So I've been drinking coffee for a really long time. To find myself going cold turkey and not having cravings has been um, incredibly beautiful and what a gift. And also, of course, my sleep has improved. It is not perfect. It is not, I wouldn't describe it as the type yet. I hope it's coming, but I wouldn't describe it as the type of sleep that is, I have a friend who says, I go to bed, I fall asleep, I wake up, I'm well rested. I'm not quite there yet. I did notice in, since I've been food journaling that and tracking like how I sleep and how all of these things are going, I've been doing that for about two, 
two-ish months, month, month and a half, something like that. I have definitely had the harder nights of sleep when I've been overstimulated out in the world. I'm kind of, you know, just uh, researching, looking into, you know, where, where I might fall on that spectrum of things because I do get incredibly overwhelmed and distracted and all of those things that come with being overstimulated in environments where there are a lot of people and lights and noise, etc. And so, you know, those other than those nights when I have had to do a lot of extroverting and a lot of, you know, physical sometimes work or a lot of, you know, whatever in that category, those are the nights I have a harder time falling asleep. And I think it's just because my body is just still amped up and it doesn't know how it's trying to come back down. My sleep has been better than and I'm getting up and I'm now past the habit of like, what do I do in the morning if I'm not sitting there nursing a cup of coffee, right? Um, I'm drinking water and I'm going about my morning routine. But then there's also the idea of, you know, that afternoon slump. If you're a coffee drinker and you might be familiar with it, where you hit, you know, one, two o'clock and you just want to take a nap. Like I couldn't ever take a nap, but I felt like I would take a nap or I would lose all motivation to work. I've watched that part of me change and not feel exhausted, you know, midway through the day, not necessarily lose motivation unless it's just, you know, get up, it's time to do something else uh, because we've, you know, been staring at the screen for too long. And so I'm just, I'm just celebrating that today. I've talked about this longer than I thought I would today, but it's, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal for me, and I just wanted to acknowledge the, the steps and the progress that you know, I'm making with when I am talking to other people about you know, taking care of their health. I want to be aware that I am doing the same thing. I'm taking care of my health. And if sleep is the worst thing causing all of these other things and, and ability to be you know, focused and, and productive and motivated and present then I needed to do something about it. And so I did. And I'm hopeful that, you know, this continues to get better and better because I have found that each week has been better. And I have read others' experiences who have shared that, you know, you're not going to get results within the first couple of weeks. It takes time. It takes time for your body to just keep adjusting and keep adjusting. And I've heard this, you know, across the recovery community as well with all the different ways that they've, you know, been in recovery and so I'm just holding on to that and I just wanted to share that if for anyone who may be you know thinking in terms of like is this is this something that I'm dealing with or do I I need to make a hard decision and do this you know you you do have the rough days that come right after you begin. I always think day 1 is like the easiest and then it it can suck for a little while. For almost everything, whole 30, cutting sugar, exercising, right? The first day you do it you're like, "Woo!" and then you're like, "I got to do it again." Oh unless you just love exercise, right? But some of us are like, well, that kind of hurts, right? And it, and it will hurt for a while. Most things, when we start them, will hurt for a while. Whew. So I feel better. I'm feeling better, and I'm really excited about that. Now, I wanted to touch on something someone said, and I think it's going to make this a little bit of a longer episode, and I probably should break it into two, but I'm not going to because I am recording two in, in one week, and I'm really proud of myself, because this is going to come out on next Monday. Well, you should be reading, hearing it on a Monday. So I wanted to talk about 
the grieving process and how it applies in the category of domestic violence. Because I hear this come up a lot. I've experienced this myself and it's confusing and complicated feeling. So what I mean by the grieving process in domestic violence, or sometimes, you know, we're talking about a relationship that was abusive, like between family members. So let's say, I don't know, hypothetically speaking, between a mother and a daughter, my mother, me, the daughter. It sounds like when you walk away from the person, when you've closed that door, when that abuse has ended, that you should be happy, right? I hear this all the time. People will say, I bet you're a lot happier or you didn't need that. Things are going to be much better. And those things are true. In a lot of ways, I'm a lot happier. In a lot of ways, you know, things are, are much better in most of the ways, right? But what we don't talk about as often is the grieving that goes along with the loss of that relationship because often we love that person regardless of how they've hurt us we still love that person we have experiences with that person that weren't all bad when I think of my ex-husband I don't necessarily I can say I probably grieved him way before he died and what I mean by that is I had, I knew I had fallen out of love with him that, you know, that sounds like a, just, you know, fell off, I fell off the chair, no longer in love. He had done so many things that just ate away at that love that I cared about him as a person, but I was not in love with him. I cared about him as the father of my children, but I was not in love with him. And the final straw was going back to that you know, experience of having that uh, idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura, the ITP, is that that occurred at a time when multiple incidents had happened, but I had had our second son without him present. He was in prison at the time. And it was devastating to me to ha have that experience because we had planned that pregnancy. You know, our first pregnancy was not planned at all. But our second pregnancy was we wanted to, you know, give our eldest son a sibling. And to know that he was still out committing crimes, taking things that weren't his, when we had planned this pregnancy, and I'd gotten pregnant, was just devastating to me. But I wasn't done yet. Nope, I wasn't done yet. And I moved back and forth between Florida and Georgia and, and going and visit him in jail and the prison and, uh, you know, all of these ways that were just overwhelmingly difficult. And the day that the ITP exhibited itself, I had been through numerous things during that very hard pregnancy and very hard labor and delivery and car accident and other really terrible incidents that had happened. So I'd gone to court for him. He had been transferred to the local county jail at this point to face charges for crimes there. He was just bouncing from place to place because he had crimes in all these different places, committed crimes in all these different places. So we had gone to court and the judge did not grant him the ability to come home. 
uh, did not make a bond or anything like that. And I'm not even sure I had money to, I think the, I think the hope was that there wouldn't be a money bond that because we were in our hometown, he would just get out and whatever. Well, what ended up happening, of course, was that he did not. And here I was still, you know, like struggling with, you know, two little boys and all of this, you know, trauma that had happened physical and, and emotional and mental that had been happening over the period of, you know, more than nine months. So I went home that day and that's when the symptoms of the ITP first started, ex you know, exposing themselves. I ended up in the hospital for 11 days, uh, slowly bleeding to death and, and not being able to figure out why I was, you know, they couldn't figure out what to do to make the um, situation go away. And, and it actually took a, a lot of people before a blood specialist came in and, you know, nailed it on the head. He knew what it was. But in the meantime, I lost a lot of blood, went through a bone marrow biopsy. You know, they were checking for literally everything. So I experienced all of this with him. And thankfully, my I had my mom, but my mom was still not the best caretaker. So it was extra stressful to have her taking care of my infant son and my um, older son. And I at least had the knowledge that my older son could sort of tell me what was going on. But she would bring my baby to the hospital and he would just have like a nasty diaper on and have like dried milk and crustiness all under his neck. It was just very difficult to that that person had to be who was taking care of my children when she, you know, shouldn't have. And I don't just want to be mean. I'm thankful that she was there, but she wasn't necessarily good at some of those other parts. And I needed my husband, I needed their father home. So when I did get out of the hospital, thank goodness, obviously, spoiler alert, I didn't die. I, you know, we went back to court because they had another court hearing and I was so frail. I was, I was covered in bruises. I was um, still bleeding in some ways. And I stood up there and I ended up passing out in the front of the courthouse for, uh, courtroom. And the, you know, that some people thought I was faking it. And um, it was just, I, I had just gotten out of the hospital. And so I, you know, was pleading with this judge to please, please let him out. And it turns out this is the same judge that, um, had seen him multiple times. And so knew of our, you know, our relationship, et cetera. So he ended up letting him get out of jail and he came home and I thought, Oh my gosh, here's my happily ever after it's, it's actually happening. And he came home and he was, he was amazing and he was attentive and, you know, everything was just wonderful and good. And then we, you know, we, uh, moved into a new house and like all, it, just all of these things were really great. And then that's when he, uh, had, it always feels weird to say had an affair. That's just wrong. He cheated on me with a very young girl. And when that happened and then his, you know, his re response basically was like, well, you know, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to have sex with you because, you know, you're still sick. And so like he was doing me a favor. Uh, the gaslighting was strong with him. Uh, he may have written the book on it. And it was, it was just, that I mean, like well, I thought I was devastated before. This was devastating because it, it just shattered every illusion of like, oh, he's finally grown up. He's finally got it together. He's finally going to like, has a good job. Like all of those things, he's taking care of us. And he wasn't, it was all an illusion again, again, again. So by the time that that happened and then between when he, he died a couple of years later, 
I had already, in so many ways, in 95, grieved him and gotten to that point of like, it's never going to happen. I care about this person, but I'm not in love with this person. He is not it. He's not the one. And I just began shutting down. You know, I, I started shutting my, my very soul down. And I know I was present for my kids and that was about it. And the only reason we ended up back together, and this is all in my book, you're welcome to, you know, check it out on Amazon, the first 22 years are the hardest. The only reason I got back with him, or at least, you know, I don't know how it would have played out differently, is because I did end up pregnant with our third child, our daughter. And I remember just trying to like, evoke those memories that or those old feelings, right, of like, love, 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 and trying over and over, like, I am in love with him, I can love him, I can love him. And realizing quite brokenheartedly that I just didn't, there was no way that I could. And now I was afraid because I had a daughter. So by the time he's laying in a casket, going in the ground, like I am crying for what my children have lost, even though logically they're probably coming out better, but I'm grieving for their loss because they will never necessarily know their father. And while I don't think that he was ever going to be an amazing father, I do know that it is difficult to not know who your people are, where you come from. And at the same time, right, I acknowledge that complicated feeling of like, um, I'm glad that, you know, that's, he doesn't have to. But when I cried, they don't have to. But when I cried that day, when I cried throughout that whole experience, I don't, I don't think I was ever crying about him being dead. I felt guilty about him being dead. I felt immense, terrible pain for all the people who mourned him. I don't think I grieved him as being dead. Part of that was shock, right? There was a lot of shock in everything that ended up happening. But a huge part of that was I had already grieved so much. What I was grieving that time was that there would never be the opportunity for him to change. There would never be the opportunity for the children to have a changed father, a healed and healthy father. Because I know he struggled with his own demons. His mom was murdered when he was five. He was raised by an abusive father. Those are all reasons, right? Things that happened to him that were terrible, but not excuses for his behavior. And I can acknowledge those things and grieve for the boy that he was that lo you know, lost his mom and the boy that he was that went through all those terrible experiences and the teenager that he was that just you know, never had any kind of modeling for what was better. And on the flip side, neither did I. And I didn't hurt people. So, you know, again, whenever we're looking at the situation of, you know, somebody acting out in the space of, you know, being an abuser because they were abused, those are excuses. And I, you know, I know that we can all change our behaviors and we can choose things. And I know things are mental health and that's way too complicated to jump into. But, you know, mental health doesn't get get blamed for that when we have a lot of people out here who are amazing, incredible, 
people who don't hurt others and they ha are challenged by mental health, uh, you know, different um, uh, situations, experiences, and illnesses. So that's just a different tangent. But I had already grieved so much already that by the time I got home from the funeral, you know, I wasn't a crying, sobbing mess. And the weekend after he died, I was back at work out of necessity because I needed to. And it was, you know, game on. I have, I have to, three kids to take care of. But what I did grieve over the years was, you know, the loss of what I thought was going to be. And I'm not in that space anymore at all. But I remember being in that space of like, it'll never happen. Well, I'm glad it never happened because if it had happened, right, I wouldn't have the happiness with my husband now. But you don't know that when you're in that space. And I think one of the things that comes up a lot with people that I work with or just in support groups is that grieving process. You know, you don't go into a marriage or into a relationship or into you know, any kind of friendship or any kind of, you know, partnership with, you know, within the family, like you don't get born to think, you know, this person that's supposed to love me is going to hurt me. We don't anticipate that. We're certainly a lot like, you know, oh, I, you know, can't wait for this to go wrong. <laughs> right. Or, you know, we, we definitely don't plan for it to go wrong. We, we get married, we walk down that aisle, we hold hands, we connect with people because we want it to be good. We want to have those connections. And when they don't happen the way we envision, and I'm not talking about like, oh, you know, the romance sort of went away or, you know, whatever. I'm talking about real physical, mental, emotional abuse, sexual abuse that happens within some of these relationships. You do end up grieving what you thought it was going to be. And that is okay. There's nothing wrong with you if you do that. There's nothing wrong with you th that you're unhealthy for grieving those things. There's nothing wrong with you for missing that person. I miss my mom. And I would say like 75% of our relationship over the years was never good. <laughs> but I missed that small window of goodness that was there. I miss it, and, and I know that she is not completely this bad person. What I know is that it's healthier for me to not have a relationship with her, and I have to lean on that in the same way that I have to lean on it's healthier for me not to have coffee, right? It's healthy for me to have sleep. It's healthy for me to have boundaries around people. I just want to encourage you today. If you find yourself in that space of grieving someone that was hurting you, grieving the time that you had together, missing them, that's pretty natural and normal, whatever normal is, right? It's okay. What we want to do is make sure that we don't re-engage in that space. And that's not to say a person cannot change, but it's you're not your job. It's not your job to change them. It is your job to just take care of you. And if you have little ones, to take care of them. 
And the more you take care of you and you take care of them, the more you grow and you're able to recover in a space where if that person changes that you miss, if they change and they do the work, you can see whether they actually did or not. More, you can look for all those green flags in other relationships if that's what you desire. You'll become much more adept at what is a red flag and what is a green flag. What do I want? What don't I want? But it's okay to grieve. I encourage you to grieve. In fact, feel it. Feel it so you can process it. Feel it so it's not just living in there like a heavy stone in the pit of your stomach that you don't acknowledge it. Because when we don't acknowledge it, we don't process it. And when we don't process it, we don't heal from it. And when we don't heal from it, we're not really operating at our best. So like most things, I can, I can make a connection, right? Grieving, got to do it. Coffee, can't do it. <laughs> not good. Not good. For me, I learned that I needed to properly grieve and process and heal. And in the same way, you know, taking each incident and each experience and understanding what I need from it and what I can let go. I hope this encourages you. I hope that you feel what you need to feel, let go of what you need to let go of, and hold on to everything that still matters to you and take it one day at a time. I'll see you next time.